And I'm hoping that if we've handled the word well, there's both encouragement but also conviction on some significant levels in our lives. And so with all that going on, I recognize that as we come to our last hour together, what we're trying to do is really now put the big pieces together. And I want to start or where I want to finish the day today and where the end of our next discussion notes will put us is really back where we started. So I can, what I'm really trying to do with this last talk is, is put us in a context now where we think through if God built us to be this way, but because of sin, we've fallen from that perfect order. The cross gives us an opportunity to be back in right relationship with God. And crucial to that is the ability to forgive because we've been forgiven and understanding what that means. Now we want to begin to asking, what does that start to look like in a life of a marriage where the husband and wife are both under the lordship of Christ? They've been forgiven by Christ. They're learning to forgive one another. And now they want to say, they ask the question, Lord, how could our marriage come together to be a beautiful picture to the world of what your relationship is with Christ in the church? Most marriage problems are not that dramatic. Most of them are like what the Song of Solomon talks about, the foxes that get in the vineyard, things that kind of eat away at the roots of, of, of the vine plants, things like poor communication, time ill spent. You have fatigue that goes on in the marriage. You have words of criticism. You have people not serving one another, taking each other for granted. They're usually not that big of issues. But nonetheless, they can be very painful in their own right. And what we're beginning to ask the question, really actually finishing asking the question of, is how could understanding what marriage is made for, how why we've sinned and how the gospel comes into our lives, how can it rescue both the little things and the big things? What would that begin to look like in a marriage context? Well, I think what that can look like we can discover from Ephesians chapter 5. And what I want to do with our last time together is go to the most famous passage in the Bible on marriage and kind of work through Ephesians chapter 5 and talk through some specifics. During the time that we're going to spend in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to take a small snippet of it to specifically focus on singles. And the reason I want to do that with singles is to help those folks who are in that category today to really think through some important categories of how to behave and prepare for marriage. But also for those of us who are parents or hope to be parents someday or are shepherding younger singles to help them think through how they should handle themselves in relation to some specific areas. So let's, let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. And what I want to do is begin actually um, where I think the proper understanding of marriage begins, and that is not at, not at verse 22, but actually at verse 15. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to begin at verse 15. Therefore, Paul saying to the church at Ephesus, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, But understand what the will of the Lord is. Let me just stop right there and just simply say this. A lot of students in the age of 18 to 25 who are at the seminary, they come to my office. We have a lot of good conversations. I'm not only the principal, I'm actually a friend, I hope, and we have a lot of good conversations. And a lot of the questions that come up are, what's God's will for my life? Well, guess what? The Lord just kind of answered it right here, a very specific and important place. If you ever ask the question, what the Lord's will for my life is, the answer might be a little different than you expect, but it's very clear. Verse 17, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is for your life, that you would be, look at verse 18, not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Let me finish this up to 21 and come back to this point here. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, what will happen in verse 22, Paul will make the specific discussion about marriage come to life. But what, the reason we need to stop, start at verse 15 is that Paul's saying, look, if you want to know God's will for your life, if you want to be someone who's following hard after me, you've got to get this one very simple point. You have to be filled with the Spirit. So everybody, let's focus for a minute on verse 18, because that's the key or the secret to living marriage as God designs it to be. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? That's the big question. The specific to get you to think that through is compare it to what Paul compares it to. Notice it's a really kind of an odd verse if you stop. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation or wastefulness, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the comparison. So how does that help us understand what being filled with the Spirit is? What's Paul doing there? Yeah, go ahead, Gary. Um, back in those times of culture writing to was using uh, wine as a means to be communed with the gods and that sort of thing. And so he was trying to combat that with don't do that, but be under the control of the Holy Spirit instead. Okay, good, very good. Excellent. What other ideas? Andy? Um, alcohol kind of gets into your whole bloodstream and sort of affects mm-hmm. your whole experience of reality. Is that part of maybe the yeah, in fact, what do you think um, is the... Do you remember the old-fashioned term for alcohol? Spirits. Sometimes you'll, you'll describe about if you drink the spirits. And what happens when you drink booze? Your judgment will get altered because something else is controlling your judgment. Okay, so why, why is Paul comparing being drunk with wine with the filling of the Holy Spirit? Is because something's going to control you. And what Paul's saying is that if you're going to live out the Christian life in submission to one another and then in the marriage context, you have to be controlled with something besides your own ideas. Does that make sense to you? That's the only way you can have a potential success. So think of the word filled in particular. Do not get drunk with wine for that's a waste. That's dissipation, but rather be filled what does it mean to be filled? Yeah, overflowing. That's good. What else would you say? Garrett? Can you tell I'm giving you a clue? Can you... Here, Cam, open that up. What happens when you open this can? It spews everywhere. Everything that you need to fill the can is already in the can. See, the filling of the Holy Spirit, when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you. The Holy Spirit is already in you. You don't need more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs more of you. What Paul is saying when he says, don't get drunk with wine, because what you're trying to do is fill yourself with something that will end up, you'll be stupid. If any of you have been drunk in the room, you know what it is. You end up being stupid. Instead, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, something inside of you wells up into all the parts of your being and enables you to be different than you currently are. This is just a silly illustration to to point out that you don't need a second baptism in the Holy Spirit. What you need is for you to surrender to the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to change your life from inside out. So I won't open this. We'll just set that aside for right now. But that's a crucial teaching for us because the Holy Spirit, if if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit already indwells you. 
So therefore, you already have the power sources necessary to be the kind of person the rest of the passage is talking about. The real question will then be surrender. So look back at the passage here. Particularly look at verse 21. For you ladies who are in the room today, please do not miss verse 21. It says that we are all to be subject to one another. So notice what Paul's telling you. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have the power to suggest to subject yourself to one another. The disposition of Christians across the board is that we're submitting ourselves to one another. Everybody clear on that? Now the Lord's going to show us how to do that. But we want to think about this. In life, that's just the way that it is. Children are in subjection to their parents because that's the natural order of things. We as citizens of a country, according to Romans 13, are supposed to be in subjection to the ruling authorities over us because that's simply the nature of the universe and how God put the created order in place. The angels are in subjection to the king of the universe. It's just the way it is. What Ephesians 5 will tell us is that Jesus is the head of the church. So what does that mean for all the rest of us? We're in subjection to Jesus. It's just the disposition of believers is that you understand that a part of who you are is that you're a subject, you're someone who's in submission. Okay, is everybody clear on that? Okay, from that point then, and look at verse 22. Paul will then break that down. He says, from the point of view that you're filled with the Holy Spirit and all of us are willing to submit ourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord, who's our head, then how does this begin to flesh itself out in marriage? Well, the Lord says to us here, through Paul's writing in Ephesians, that wives then need to take a very specific approach to subjection in that they should be subject to their husbands as unto the Lord. Well, that's really an interesting phrase. Be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. Let's stop and talk out loud for a minute there. What does that verse imply? What's that? Yeah, that's really good. What's your name? I didn't catch you earlier. Erica? Okay, Erica, you're right on the money with that, I think. You want to draw that out a little bit? What, what might be that other way? Yeah. Yes. And we'll, we'll, we need to develop this because it's possible for you to submit poorly. And the way that you could do that is either by not being willing or following an idiot into sin. Okay, so there's two ways to be a poor submitter. Either you really don't want to and you don't really do it, or you submit and become a doormat and follow somebody into sin. Both of those are poor ways to submit. So that's why I think Erica, I think probably what clued her into that idea is be in subjection as to the Lord. So when a woman thinks about subjection... In other words, being in submission, what should be her attitude? And if you can, try to connect it back to our very first discussion this morning. See, the subjection unto the Lord is one in which I'm worshiping my king and obeying my king, but I'm doing it within the structures in which the Lord says appropriate for us. 
something else we need to draw out of this, and the rest of the text will help us with this, but what is this assuming about a husband? That he's following the Lord. Yeah. See, this is an important element. For whatever reason, I think there's a lot of good reasons. In our culture, the word submission has become almost a dirty word for gals. And the idea that a wife would submit to her husband is really hard. And oftentimes thinks, that's crazy. Why would I do that? Well, the reason we do that is not because he's better than you. It's not because you don't have certain skills or abilities. It's because this is the structure of the way that God built the universe. He made Adam first. He gave Adam the commands. He made a helper suitable for Adam in the garden. And then when they sinned, he came right after Adam and asked Adam, what did you do? And then here in this passage, it tells wives to subject themselves to their husbands as to the Lord. Look what it says. For the husband is the head of the wife. Look at the comparison. As Christ is head of the church. Now, I don't necessarily have to understand the whole structure to see that it's true. So, I wonder, ladies, if if part of the struggle with submission would be dissipated if two things were happening in your heart. One, if you would remember that your submission is actually really unto the Savior. And another thing that would really help the gals out, guys is if the guy that they were submitting to was like the Lord. So in some ways, when Paul's teaching the ladies here, he's actually trying to instruct us men to say, look, this gal is supposed to submit, but note that the comparison is one in which they're submitting to someone as unto the Lord. And so I better be thinking about, am I someone who's worthy to be submitted to? The fact of the matter is I never will be. I'm a pretty sinful guy. But I need to be striving in a way that my life character is shifting and altering so that I'm becoming more and more like that. See, how does our culture think about the word submission? Think about this visually with me. Doesn't submission feel a lot like this? What this text is teaching you is that submission is submission to a man who's doing this. How can I serve you? Baby, how can I love you? What are some ways that I can build you up? Any way that I can change? Now, gals, let me ask you a personal question. How easy would it be to submit to a guy doing that? It'd be a lot easier than submitting to a guy doing this, wouldn't it? In terms of the motives of your heart, if your husband was a man who was serving and loving you. And so this is not just a teaching for you gals. And here's one of the problems is that our culture tends to put it like more like this. All right. I'm going to go sit down on the couch. Baby, get me a sandwich and pass me that remote. And somehow that idea of what submission is has begun to permeate into the church. And so you actually have Christian men saying things like, isn't she supposed to submit to me when I say this? Instead of the husband thinking, how can I serve so that she understands she's giving her life to Christ? That's a pretty potent difference. Now, ladies, here's the hardest teaching of the day in regard to submission you'll probably get, but it's true because the Scriptures simply say it this way. Whether or not your husband is a very good guy, you're still called to submit. And that's where your loving worship of the King 
can make such an impact on him that he might actually come to Jesus. He might actually have his life altered. But even if he doesn't, the Lord's telling you that your mannerisms, your disposition should be to be in submission to your husband. Okay, so how does that work out in practice when husband's in sin? Well, think about that with me. And I've already kind of alluded to it in light of what Erica said. If he's not in the Lord, then what does a wife do? Yeah, that's right, Andy. So give me a little bit more. What do you mean by that? It's tough teaching, isn't it? Let's put it in a little bit more difficult context there. Let's say this never happened in our marriage. I want to make this extremely clear. This did not happen in our marriage. But let's say a husband who's involved with pornography invites his woman into pornography with him. Okay, let's watch this together and maybe we'll get ideas. I'm the husband, you're the wife, you need to submit to me. Okay, let me emphasize, especially since I'm on tape, this never happened in our marriage. Okay? What would a a godly wife who's submitting do in that moment? Why? Explain it. See, here's the structure. Headship of Christ, headship of husband, then the wife. If this guy gets out of line, her head shifts to Christ. Is that clear? A wife is never supposed to follow her husband into sin, nor uh, vice versa. So, But what is her disposition? This is the harder part. What's her disposition even when husband does knucklehead over here? Can you give me more? You're exactly right. Very good. Yeah, keep going. What, what? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the rest of you ladies, I want to point out that three of the older ladies, still very young, gals, I know you're all still very young, <laughs> but they have more years than some of you younger folks, and, they, and listen to what they're saying. Because they've bumped into guys who, like the speaker, are just wretched sinners. And they've had to figure out how to love in that context. So as they look at this guy and he's out of line with the Lord, then what they're saying basically to him is, I want to follow you. Please get back in line. But until you're back in line, I'm pursuing after Jesus. The invitation is always there and I will place myself under your headship as you get back in line. So I'm going to do everything I can to help you with that. And sometimes what that means is, no! See, if I had invited Harriet into that dark world of mine, it would have been good and right for her to say, never. In the full submission of my heart, I will never go there with you. And I'm inviting you to get back right. Because I really want to follow you. So submission sometimes has... This is why it's not a a doormat situation. Submission has backbone. 
It has strength. In fact, I want to say to you that perhaps the most Christ-like thing you can do is die to yourself. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Submission takes an awful lot of self-sacrifice and godliness on the part of a woman to do those sorts of things. I do want to stop. Do you have any questions you want to engage on this right now? Because I know that's it's a pretty intense teaching that we just went through. Yeah, Karen? Uh, just that next you were going to cover it in 1 Peter chapter 3, most people are familiar with, has a lot to say about the wife following the non-believing Yeah, and you want to draw anything out from that? Just, um, I'll just read it, I guess. Uh, likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see yeah in fact harriet's uh, brother we would as we look at his life he largely came to christ because of his uh, harriet's sister-in-law really kind of laying that kind of foundation for even though he had grown up in a christian home his life altered dramatically not by her nagging by her walking with jesus Uh, yeah so that's really good you brought that out gary other thoughts or questions on that yes ma'am So as Ed does that to you, what happens in your heart? My heart just becomes so full of love and a desire to join in. Yeah. Now, I don't want to put these on these two because they're talking or they're, they're the focus on this. But I would also suggest, men, that your wife will also become frisky. Not, not always. I don't want to make it a one-to-one thing, but I do want to just put it in context. In other words, to say it a little bit differently, behaving Christ-like it actually is the most masculine thing you can do. And masculinity is a sex. So when you're, asking, when you're acting like the sex should act, you're acting sexy. Okay, in other words, the world doesn't understand sexiness. They think it's all bodily shape. But from a biblical point of view, when you act like your gender is supposed to act, you've actually demonstrated the highest form of that gender. And that is the descriptive word and adjective, sexy. So porn for women is you doing chores, guys. We joke about that at home on that a little bit on that. Obviously, that's not quite the case. But in other words, it really is important for men to get this. And young men oftentimes completely miss this. Well, I should say all men do, but particularly young guys. Man, get this now. Yes, ma'am. I would just say one more thing. Tandem on what they've all said is that I wish that we as women could grasp the concept of this, um, the way God's heart is on the idea of submission. Because I really understood it. It's such a beautiful Mm. picture. And when it's done biblically, I love the fact that Gary is my spiritual covering. Mm. Are going to be made based on the 
what's best before the Lord for me. <clears throat> so I, I know he's looking out for me. He loves me. And I can rest in the fact that he's going to, he is my spiritual covering. There is such a beauty to me in that. Yeah, good. Excellent. Excellent. So let's, let's move to the next little section of Scripture then and follow what this says then. So verse 24, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also a wife ought to be subject to their husband and everything. So her disposition is always to follow her husband. The, the, the clarity is that as he's following the Lord, she will. And then verse 25 comes, Husbands then, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And notice the, the specific ways that's described. He gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, with, or washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So ought also, husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Please notice these two words up there um, in verse 25, gave. So husbands, love your wife just as Christ gave himself. So crucially from there, a husband is initiating love. That's the one word, and he's doing it through giving service. So as a husband leads, this is where the culture gets this wrong. The culture thinks that that headship is power, when actually headship is service and love. And he's demonstrating it by leading. It's another verse that might help us with this is when Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's the disposition of a husband is, come on, baby, follow me because I'm going hard after the Lord and I need your help. Let's go. And they go for it. It's a beautiful picture. Christ loved by, remember our verse from last hour, Demonstrating Christ demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. A husband leads and loves his wife by dying for her. Now, what, is, what does dying for a wife mean? Very infrequently in our culture do we literally have to lay our physical bodies down in death. However, at 2 in the morning when the baby wakes up and the diaper stinks, for a man that can feel like death. <laughs> it does for women too. We don't make any bones about that, guys. But what that means is that sometimes, and maybe lots of times, maybe more times than not, you're up at 2 in the morning if that can work out in your marriage. Sometimes work schedules don't make that happen. But that your disposition is, I'm thinking, baby, how can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I set the sails in your life? Because look what verse 25 says, or 26. The reason he's doing that is so that he might sanctify her. What does that word sanctify mean? <coughs> To make holy? Good. What else? Set apart reserved for God. Yeah. You know, think about purity. Be a word there. So the reason he's leading her so well is that she might be sanctified. In other words, set apart as a stunning picture who's clean before the Lord. Okay, here's where I want to make a segue into dating for you singles. What's a husband's job in regard to how he should present his wife before the Lord? What does the verse say here? What's that? Holy and blameless. Okay. So if I'm dating, what's the number one question people ask in a youth group? 
how far is too far, right? When you talk about dating and you get up for these conversations, well, you know, how far is too far? Can I do this? Can I do this? Well, the text of Scripture here says that the number one job for a husband in regard to his wife is that he would present her before the Lord Jesus as holy and blameless. Now, what is dating? It's practiced marriage, isn't it? You're practicing the, the dispositions of marriage. So without setting any standards of you can French kiss or you can't or you can hold hands or you can't or you can lie down together or you can have intercourse together. Or not, without talking about any of those sorts of things, if a person who's single understands that their job when they get married is to take the person they're married to and make them as pure and holy before the Lord as possible, then when they're dating, why would it be any different? So when the dating relationship ends, it will end in one of two ways. It will end in a breakup or it will end in marriage. And the way that we should be training our youth to be thinking about this or our college students or our singles past college is that from the time they start dating to the time they finish, either at a breakup or at marriage, the person they're dating is more pure than when they started. Again, there may be a lot of conviction in the room. (laughs) I know there isn't my heart on that. But what are we telling our kids? What are we telling our culture? See, the culture says if you haven't had intercourse by the second date, something's wrong. That's a stunningly different worldview. What the scripture's telling us here is that the best sex, the most joyful and exciting sex, happens in the marriage context over the course of years and years of practice. And so the best way to be ready for that is to keep yourself chaste. And men, in particular, your job, and we have to tell every one of our young men this, that your job from the moment you start dating is to present this gal more clean than when you started. And we should have no wink, no flinch in that. Okay, that was for you singles, but for all of us as a church, be thinking that through. Let me make a side comment. If you're here with someone who you've gone further than you should have with before you were married, in other words, you're married now, but you went further than you should have, and you've never verbalized your sorrow for doing that with each other, I would recommend that you very specifically verbalize, baby, I'm sorry that I led you that way or that we went into this together. Because, again, this is one of those places you could sweep it under the rug. And I found in my 10 years of being a seminary professor that almost every couple that comes into my office that comes in for some counseling about sexual marital issues, was involved with premarital sex before they got married, and they never, they never confessed that and repented from it. And so they're starting from a place, how do we get this better? Well, you've never asked forgiveness for the first part. Clean the slate, folks. Live in the gospel, live in the grace, but clean the slate, and then move forward from there. Really good idea to do. Okay. Let me get you to think through one more specific and very, very important part of this passage as we kind of look this thing through. In verses 22 through 31, if you could scan through that passage of Scripture and look for, see if you can count up how many times is the phrase Christ in the church stated. Do a quick scan through there and... Getting a sense of what I'm looking for? What's a, a basic Bible study skill is that whenever you see a repeated phrase, it means it's really important to pay attention to. Anybody got a guess how many times that shows up there? 
Yes, yeah, six times is how that shows up. And so in, in nine verses, this phrase shows up at least five and probably six different times, depending on which translation of the English you're using. So what does that tell us about marriage? The comparison is husband and wife, Christ church. What's, that, what's Paul trying to help us to see? Marriage is an extremely important picture of Christ in the church. Good. What else? Marriage is sacred because nowadays it's nothing for kids to say, you know, to live together first to see it's going to work. Yeah. That's exactly right. Is it Louis? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Thanks, Louis. Yeah, that's exactly right. What else? That when the world looks at our marriages, they should Christ in the church. Yeah. So think about this for a minute. Your marriage is supposed to be modeled after Christ in the church. So how do you learn how to do that? You learn how Christ loved the church. And we learn that Christ loved the church by dying for it. So there's a sacrificial component. And so as we learn how to be married well, we watch how Christ loved the church. Okay, so that's one of the things we can get out of this. But what this is also telling us is that your marriage is, please get this, this is really important, it is by definition a picture of Jesus' loving the church. So what's the proper question we should ask ourselves? If your marriage is depicting the church, how's that going? How's that going? In other words, if your neighbors described your marriage or your children described your marriage, would they say, boy, I have a really beautiful picture of how Jesus loves the church. Are you familiar with the parts of speech, the indicative and the imperative? What these means is an indicative is something that's simply true whether you feel like it or not. The imperative is what you should do based on what's true. Okay, so here the indicative is your marriage pictures Christ in the church. That's just simply a true statement. So the imperative then is, how are you doing and what needs to change? Seriously, have you ever stopped to think that simply, simply by being married well, you're preaching the gospel? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Remedy Church can have an evangelistic impact in the community by simply having great marriages. Think about Louie and Kathy's marriage 40 years. What if it was known all over the community that every person in this particular church was married for 40 years? And happily, joyfully. You don't think that has impact around you? We had a sweet privilege. I won't go much into this, but we had a sweet privilege with one of the gals that my son dated for a while. She was dating my son, and as she hung around our family, she came to Christ just because of some of the things she saw in our family. She wanted to know more about Jesus, started coming to church. Something's different over there. Well, I don't get it, but it seems like they're having a lot of fun. So how's, how's your marriage doing in preaching the gospel? Let me bridge talk one to talk four and bring conclusion. God builds Adam out of the dust of the ground, Genesis 2, 7. And he takes Adam and he places him in the garden and he tells Adam to, in the Hebrew, Abad and Shamar. What do those words mean again? 
to worship and to obey. So Adam's chief purpose, what God's built him for, is to do what? To worship God, to obey the Lord. And then the Lord says to Adam, Adam, you know what? This is such a big and wonderful task. I want to give you a helper. And I'm going to build this incredible gift and give you this incredible gift. And as marriage comes together then, he tells them to be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it. And we asked the question earlier, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, what kind of people would have filled the world? So answer that again for me. The world would have been filled with sinful, sinless worshipers. Sin happens. We hurt each other. We are, our relationship with each other is broken. Our relationship with God's broken. But Jesus comes and dies on the cross for our sins. And by taking our place, our sins are placed on Him. He makes us righteous. And we now have a new foundation. And in that new foundation, we're reestablished in the original plan that God had for the universe. So that our marriage is bigger than me. It's not about someone serving my needs. It's me coming together with someone else and going hard after the original commandment God gave us. And that commandment was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with sinless worshipers. Your marriage is by definition a picture of Christ in the church. And it's supposed to be one that's drawing people unto Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, as he is lifted up. He would draw all people to himself. So at the end of our time together, I want you to look at one more verse with me, if you will. Flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. John, since you're a pastor here today, would you mind reading this out loud for everybody? Jesus came... And said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is the job of the church? Make disciples of who? Does that sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? See, if we made disciples of all nations, what would the earth be filled with? Worshippers. Who are in the eyes of God because of Christ, sinless. The original task of the garden was a great commission task. The task we're called to as the church is to re-engage that great commission and fill the earth with worshipers. Make disciples of all nations. And in that process, in God's amazing and stunning grace, He's telling you, can you do that while you're having sex? (laughs) You think about the stunning nature. If you're greatly married, just by being greatly married, you're a part of the great commission. I don't know about you all, but that is an unbelievable privilege. And so what was in the beginning is now and ever shall be, that it's from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So that whether I eat or drink or whether I'm married, I should do that to the glory of God. So let me reiterate the point and finish with the rest of the story for Jake and Shelley. The point is, whether or not you like it or understand it or realize it, your marriage is... A picture to your neighbors and to your children of Jesus' love for the church. 
When they look at you, that's what they're seeing. So the real question for us at the end of the day, are you going to let this just be a lot of information that washes over you and there's no change made? Or do you say to yourself, I want my neighbors and my children and my community to understand that Jesus loves this church by the way I'm loving my wife, by the way I'm loving my husband. You see, it's not about you. Never has been. Never will be. So what about you? Is the gospel dominating you so you understand your marriage's worship? And what will it do in your world? Very last homework assignment, if you choose to take advantage of it, will be to ask that question basically on your sheet. And it's simply this. Maybe you do this as a couple. Maybe you do this individually and talk about it. Well, what three things do you believe God wants you to get in order so that in your marriage you can picture Christ well? What do you need to get in order yourself? And then maybe you'll start to ask some new questions about your marriage. How can God use your marriage to catapult disciple makers? What are some ways that could happen? As you start to think through that, let me pray for us. And I'll invite John back up and we'll go to the next thing. Father, we are... I am praying, Father, that um, you would take me completely out of this equation. And that what would happen in the hearts and the minds of each person here would be that your Holy Spirit is filling these dear brothers and sisters. That your word is bringing conviction both positively for all the wonderful things that are happening in a marriage and maybe some strong convictions on places where change needs to take place. Father, I pray that you would hound Remedy Church in a very wonderful way that they can't escape asking the good questions now that come. How can I serve? How can I do better? Will you please correct me? Will you help me to be a better lover of Jesus? Lord, may it be that, that in just weeks and months, but certainly in years down the road, that, that I would be able to bump into any one of these and these folks would say, my husband started a whole new pattern of service in my marriage. Praise be to the king of the universe. Or that my wife learned how to forgive me and learned how to stop nagging me or learned how to be a person of great joy because she's been in the Word on a daily basis. And Lord, may it be that here in Rock Hill, that in a decade from now, there would be 40 or 50 or 100 families that say, you know, I, I, don't, I wasn't even interested in spiritual things, but I saw marriages that were so different. I had, to, I had to come and ask why, and now I love Jesus. God, would you expand our vision back to what it was in the beginning and what you reiterated in the Great Commission? And help Remedy Church and the believers in Rock Hill to lead the way in marriage as worship. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.